It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Braccia coming at you. We are going to get into UFC 259 from last week, a consequential event overall. And of course, we're going to break down Edwards versus Muhammad UFC fight night coming up this weekend. We're going to break that down in the second segment. Nikolai, did we tie on this one or did I get the advantage over you? I don't it was I don't know it was close. I just know that I made some remarkable underdog selections and predictions uh showing my excellence but at the same time we all slept on kyler phillips so yeah we definitely well uh, I, I didn't completely sleep on him i believe that kyler phillips is a really talented guy i just didn't think that he'd be fast yeah. enough to get done what he got done that was super impressive he's fast he was bold he's that's an exciting fight i'm looking forward to talking yes about it is it. i ended up getting five points in the draft you ended up getting four which puts us at 23 points to your 21 and a half i believe so we're still fairly close, mm. still very competitive. Fairly close. That's one. That's one underdog pick swing. That is absolutely true. Yeah, it's very close. I'm right on top of you. Yes, sir. Now the one uh, underdog pick that you chose that I'm very impressed by is Jan Blackwicks over Israel Adesanya. Blahovich. Jesus, aren't like Blahovich. He's I understand. Champ. I know about the great Polish Uzbek war <laughs> of, <laughs> and that's why you keep defaming him. But you get all these names. Right, and the one and the one that's actually not that hard. You completely fumble every show. Jan Blahovich. Jan Blahovich. Jan Blahovich. I'm I'm getting it now, Nick. I, I can I can do this. I believe it. So you you picked Jan Blahovich. I saw that Jan had what it took to at the very least make this a very close fight, which it was, right? But I didn't pull the trigger on him. I didn't take the chance. You did. Now I did end up actually picking Israel, which saved me from you scoring two points on me on that pick. So that worked out. Um, but yeah, look, Jan Blachowicz is phenomenal. Blahovich, Jesus. What, do I got to come over there? Jan Blachowicz. Do I got to come over to Union Union City with an, with an army of Polish friends? <laughs> you don't have an army of friends of any kind. I do yeah, I too. Do. Uh, yeah, Ivan Putsky, Joanna Giajekic, like we got, we're gonna roll up. You hang out with these people? I didn't know that, Nick. Yes, really yes. We're on a, we have a, we have a, a clubhouse thing that we do once a week called famous famous polls in sports. <laughs> but you're an Italian man. I don't know how you got into that clubhouse. Uh, but props to you, my friend. It's kind of like the 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 Jewish guy that always hangs out uh, with the mob boss, even though he's not Italian. You, you are. That's funny. I'm the that Italian guy who always hangs out, <laughs> with, hangs out with the Jewish guys. Exactly. No, with the Jewish guy. Oh. <laughs> but I, I thought we were talking about the yeah, Polish. I'm the opposite of that. Uh, but well, we were. I mean, yeah, that's not true. I don't actually. I don't actually. Do. Although I did see Ivan Putsky wrestle at my high school at my high school gym. All right, Nikolai. Um, so Israel Adesanya and Jan Blackwitz. I think everyone expected that Israel was going to be faster than Adesanya. <laughs> he did it again. <laughs> I did it again. Sorry. Jan Blachowicz, Jan Blacho, Jan Blachowicz really put this it all amazing. together. It's like me. It's like me doing doing uh, any Russian name besides Nurmagomedov. This is it, this is the best. Really this is. Is the best I, part I'm of my just day used to pronouncing his name the wrong way. There's really no going around it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So Jan Blachowicz looked fantastic, man. I think he formulated the perfect game plan and executed it right. We spoke last week about how he has every chance in the world to win this fight. I talked about how he is really good at defending and also countering kicks. I talked about how he's got really good counters, how he can be good on the pressure. 
my big concern with Yan was that he wasn't going to stop himself from wading in with those blitzes like he normally does, like he did against Thiago Santos, which cost him that fight. It's the only loss he has in his last nine fights, right? And it was in a fight where he was very patient, kind of like he was early in the in the Israel fight. But then he blitzed at him. He just ran at him with his cross-jab-cross combo or whatever he, he does uh, often enough. And Thiago Santos was able to counter him with that left hook and knocked him out. And I thought that Israel was going to have similar success, especially since Israel has recently gotten a couple of those counter left hook knockouts. But that wasn't to be. Yan stayed super, super disciplined. Uh, he did a really great job of staying just out of Israel's jab range, and he checked almost every kick. He did a brilliant job of checking Israel's kicks from both the inside and the outside of the leg. Uh, and when he did do a sort of blitz, it wasn't really a blitz. He just moved forward very slightly with a cross hook. And then if Israel ended up with his back against the cage planted, he may have thrown a, a left knee in there, right? But he did such a phenomenal job. Didn't hang out in the pocket like Robert Whitaker did, like Paul Acosta did. He was so careful to stay at the perfect range. And obviously the fact that he's a much bigger man than Adesanya, at least as far as weight is concerned, uh, aided him in that. It seemed to me like yeah. in that third round is when Adesanya was like, all right, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm pissed and I'm putting it on him. And he picked his speed up. And he clearly won that third round. I thought the third was the only round you could argue Israel clearly won. Outside of that, I think uh, an easy argument to be, to, could be made for either guy having won the first round. And outside of that, it's all uh, Blachowicz to me. Yeah, it was a it was a really fun fight to watch, even though it may not be described as fireworks. Here's I don't want to say I'm not going to use that the trite term that I always use uh, in vague one of composure. But I will say that Jan Blahovich showed incredible uh, championship uh, level ability to manage all aspects of this fight. He managed distance. He managed tempo. He managed stamina. He managed his chin. He felt the power. It was more than he thought it would be. But he also discovered that Adesanya was a little bit slower than he thought he would be, as he said in the post-fight interview. And he just he perfectly managed all of his resources um, to make it tough on Adesanya everywhere. He 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 just he fought he fought really smart. And and Adesanya, who's you know who's got power, but he cap he capitalizes on mistakes. He capitalizes on 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 guys not seeing him. He may you know people run into his shots a lot. And Blahovich didn't do that. He doesn't have uh, Chuck Liddell style. You know, I'm trying to think of other guys, um, or even like that Tyre that earlier in his career, like Tyron Woodley style. Like Adesanya is is a sniper assassin. He's not a face melter. And I mean, Tiago Santos is a bit of a face melter, to be honest, compared to Adesanya. And Blahovich was big, man. He was big, and he just came in. I still think you know what? I still think Glover's a tough fight. I think Glover's a tougher fight. Uh, for him, I'll still p I'll pick Blahovich. I think going into that, but I think that's a tougher fight than Adesanya. Adesanya just was not, um, just wasn't strong enough, uh, and he you could see it you could see it on his face the plan the plan Bs the plan Cs the in the in fight management. Um, he was not you know he was not able to apply, and we've seen that with him. We've seen fighters, um, you know, kind of push him against his limitations. 
and he's you know he can seem it's mixed martial arts and to use video game analogies like blahovich fought like a guy who had essentially leveled up all of his stats across the board whereas adesanya index is really high on most stats but there's other ones where he's just you know he's not uh he's not a super strong fighter uh comparatively or, or doesn't have a championship level skill and can usually cover you know cover up for that by virtue by virtue of focusing on the ones that he has and it's not it's not that it's not that he got exposed it's just that Blahovich was bigger more well-rounded and and fought a uh and better managed the fight yeah i don't know if him being exposed is the right term for it i do think I, no that, I, that's what i said i said he was no, no, I totally say i'm i'm, I'm agreeing with you uh i think what it really was is that Blackwitz formulated the right game plan to deal with Adesanya. And so now there's a blueprint, right? It's not that Adesanya absolutely sucks in, in this and this and this area, although there are some weaknesses, clearly. It's that there's a very clear game plan. There's a clear path to beat him now. And I'm not saying that everybody can execute it, right? Especially at middleweight, which is notoriously not a phenomenal division. But Blackwitz did just about everything right. I talked last week about how he would need to pressure with fakes and be ready to block and counter Izzy's jabs. He did that. I talked about how he can only counter with one or two strikes. He cannot afford to stay in the pocket with Izzy where he can be countered. And he did exactly that, right? I talked about how he should be ready to check or counter Izzy's leg kicks. He was ready for that. Um, I talked about how his strength advantage might allow him to get takedowns over Izzy if he does it in the right ways, and he did it, right? He set up those takedowns, those late takedowns that gave him a clear-cut fourth and fifth round by making Izzy believe that not only is Yan willing to strike with him, but that Yan is very capable of doing well against Izzy standing. At this point, we got to look at Yan Blahovich as a, the true light heavyweight champion. I realize he beat another middleweight here. He also has a win over Jacare Souza, over Luke Rockhold. He has a fight against Tiago Santos, right? So uh, Jared Cannonier, he fought. He, he's fought all these guys that either ended up or moved up from middleweight. And this was one of those matchups. Clearly, the size advantage favors him, but he's also 8-1 and one in his last nine fights. The last time he lost to an unworthy opponent was 2017. And he was on a two-fight losing streak to Alexander Gustafson and Patrick Cummins. And he put everything together. He looked absolutely fantastic. And at age 38, you have to consider him the clear-cut best light heavyweight in the world. Nick, at this point, I would pick him over John Jones without even honestly thinking much about it. Like this version of John Jones that's been coming out for his last couple of fights against this version of Jan Blahovich. Jan is more aggressive. He hits harder. He's at the very least, going to be able to defend takedowns. I don't think he needs to land them. He should be able to defend most of John Jones's kicks. And John Jones is not at all dangerous for a knockout outside of a head kick. So I think Jan Blahovich at this point is the clear-cut best light heavyweight on the planet. Yeah, I don't think I don't think there's any question. I mean, as good as Adesanya is, he is. I mean, he's a he's a great middleweight, and it takes a lot to make that twenty pound jump. And he's had you know he's had had a very very competitive fight with Kelvin Gastelum, a man who is essentially a, a you know a, be, a slightly beefed up welterweight. True. Um, Robert Whitaker, who I mean he he dominated Whitaker, but Whitaker is a welterweight. Uh, he fought Brad Tavares, who's not very big for middleweight. I mean, Marvin Vittori is pretty thick, but again, that's a middleweight body. Like he's, he, you know, the guys, that, the guys that he's fought at middleweight who are really thick are, um, you know, it's kind of muscle piled on. They're not like massive humans with a with just a natural backspan 
that <laughs> Bojanjo Blahovich has. Right. So I just think you know, you know, I and and frankly, Adesanya after the fight, he was I, he showed humility and defeat, which I always appreciate. He said, "Dare to be great," and that's uh, he. You know, he rolled the dice. It was a. It was definitely the biggest money fight out there for him. Um, after he's pretty much cleaned up at at middleweight, so you know, I think he did everything. I think he did everything right too. I've got no. Pro- I got no problem with that. With the, with anything that I, with Adesanya going up, I've got no problem with um, you know, with the way he performed, and I don't really. Like I think he's still gonna, you know, gonna be a great uh, middleweight champion. So I, I don't, I, I don't know who, who's gonna come up in that uh, division and uh, really be a threat to the throne in over the next like eighteen months. I mean, I, I think Israel should have control over the division. I think a lot will depend on the Darren Till Marvin Vittori matchup coming up here. Vittori is an interesting fight. I'm not. I don't think. I think. I think he murders Till, but I don't. I think Vittori has looked real good, and he looked real good in their first fight. And Vittori's a lot better than they're both better, but Vittori's, uh, yeah, he's he's looking pretty fantastic. That's an interesting fight to go back and watch because uh, it felt like Vittori had a lot of the puzzle solved a couple of years ago. Yeah, I don't know about quite solved, but it certainly was a very competitive fight. It ended up being a split decision win for Israel Adesanya, which we haven't really seen a whole lot of extremely close fights in his. MMA career thus far and uh, yeah I think Vittoria is certainly one guy that if he comes out with a win over Darren Till and it also seems like Izzy is very willing to fight Darren Till it's interesting he talked about fighting Darren Till recently and he talked about fighting Jared Cannonier before that right which kind of shows you Izzy really would love to just keep fighting these strikers that's his kind of ideal um, he's not exactly calling out guys like Marvin Vittori at this point. But yeah, I, I think Vittori is probably... Well, there's no money in it. There's no pay-per-view points in a Vittori fight. Nobody knows who, you know, it's... I, I think it's cool because maybe we'd have the first Italian champion, but... Yeah, I don't know if there's paper, uh, very much pay-per-view points in... In fact, there's none in fighting Jared Cannonier either, right? It's not about pay-per-view points. It's really about the style matchup, it seems like to me. Uh, but yeah, look, to yeah. Izzy's credit, he took the loss like a champ, like as well as I've heard anyone take it. They kept asking him at the post-fight press conference. They were like, how did you feel at this higher weight? How did you feel with the strength? How was your training camp? How was... And he just kept saying, I felt great. I felt phenomenal. There's no excuse. Like, I, I have to give him so much credit for that. I think that's absolutely a fantastic mindset. But it does put a nick on his mystique, right? He's no longer this undefeated 20-0 untouchable UFC fighter. He's now a guy where you can see some footage of him in a couple of close fights. More importantly, you could see footage of him getting clearly beaten. Possibly 4-1, to one, I think the argument could be made. Speaking of 41, Nick, we do have to, I think, get in a little bit into the uh, play-by-play, the, the announcing for this fight. Joe Rogan did a abysmal abysmal job it just seems to me like he's bad all night i mean in particularly in this main event i thought but i'm curious to hear what other uh what other cases you noticed during the card here's the thing uh, he talked about in that third round where yan was basically up two rounds to one he talked about how clearly yan is getting outstruck why because it was a close competitive stand-up battle he just immediately assumes that the guy that's supposed to be pre-fight, supposed to be the better kickboxer, is in the lead. 
it makes no sense. It's like he's not watching the fight, and and I know that he's not doing this on purpose. I like Joe a lot for for several reasons, even though even though there are a couple of uh, opinions that he has that I definitely disagree with. But uh, I like him on the broadcast. But man, the guy's got to pay attention, right? And there's a big difference between Joe Rogan and uh, Daniel Cormier and Michael Bisping it, with John Anik, right? These guys do tremendous research for every fight. These guys tell you what these fighters tend to do, not just in their last fight, but like throughout their careers, right? If there's a UFC debuting fighter, they will tell you what they tend to do, what they tend not to do, what they're, how they're weak. Joe Rogan has none of that information. Joe Rogan will say stuff like, I wonder, you know, what, what this guy likes to do in this situation. Why don't you watch some tape? And that's the old Mike Goldberg, Joe Rogan way of doing this announcing, right? Same thing with Boss Rutten. Boss, Boss Rutten would often say in the middle of a fight, I wonder how, what his takedown defense is like. Boss, why don't you watch some fucking tape before the event? And yeah, it just seems to me like Joe Rogan is kind of phoning it in. And I guess it's understandable when you just signed a deal for $100 million and nobody's really attacking you for the work that you're doing on the UFC broadcast, kind of your side gig. Uh, but that was really, really bad announcing, man. Yeah, I, well, I was lucky in that. Um, for I had a, another personal thing going on, so I was watching the fight. Uh, the, I watched the first four rounds without audio. Ah, oh, that must be and nice. that that helped a lot. But I saw people complaining about it. But it was it was amazing turning it on, or reading what people were saying, uh, and how Rogan was calling the fight. Because watching it without sound, it seemed clear to me that Blahovich was was driving the fight. And pending any weird judging, was like by the time I turned the audio on, I thought he was well ahead. I couldn't agree with you more, man. It, it's it's absolutely silly to me, but but again, I hope that Joe uses this like he's a. I feel like he's an open minded guy. I hope he uses this to improve. Maybe like pay attention to the goddamn fight and and don't just assume that what you assumed would happen is actively happening. Like this is not the first time, right? That this has happened with Joe. So uh, yeah, that that to me was very odd. Then in the co-main event, Nick, we had Amanda Nunes absolutely below Megan Anderson out of the water. Uh, I was concerned that this might go to decision because Amanda's been a little bit more risk-averse recently, and understandably so, uh, against much higher level of competition than is Megan, but she just ran right through her. It just seemed like Megan was not only extremely nervous on the way into the octagon, but she froze in there. It was like a deer in headlights, and as soon as Amanda landed that right hand, Megan had a very different kind of approach to the fight. It was just a matter of staying at a relatively safe distance and hoping for the best. Amanda basically clocked her again, dragged her down, submitted her with a reverse arm triangle choke. It was fantastic. Really impressive stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was, it was like, you know, it just looked like a video game on easy. It was just like, you know, it's, I, I don't know what to do with Amanda Nunes or that division right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's much to do in that division, right? The, for, I understand the UFC already cut Megan Anderson she was a mediocre fighter. She was never actually like even close to a top-level fighter. If you look at her record, everybody she beat is fairly mediocre, except for her last win, uh, where she picked up one over a, a prospect. But you know, it was a prospect debuting in the UFC, and she caught her with a right hand. Like every grappler that she fought in her career, smoked her. And by the way, Holly Holm was able to take her down at will and control her. Holly Holm, who has really no knowledge, uh, is not somebody who's really employed that sort of game plan prior to that matchup. So, yeah, I, I just think Megan Anderson is absolutely mediocre at best. I'm fine with the UFC cutting her, especially after that performance. And I think Amanda Nunes is in this weird place now where she doesn't really want to cut down at 135. It's a hard cut. And there's nobody to fight at 145. And quite frankly, I don't think anybody wants to see her competing at that weight division. So, 
it is odd. I hope that she does come back down to one thirty five. But even there, like, who would she? Fight? I think she will. I do, you got you. Do you get the sense that she that she? I she's because of her last two fights are at one forty five. I got the sense that she's used to walking around heavy and she needs to make an adjustment. But I didn't get the sense that she's like not interested in uh, bant- in bantamweight defenses. She never clear cut said it right, but she's alluded to it. The reason, like, why would she possibly fight Megan Anderson going into this matchup? It's because she didn't really want to cut weight. Why would she defend the 145-pound title twice in a row when the 135 division is actually alive and kicking? It's because she doesn't well, who, really But who is there weight. against... I mean, who's there to defend against at 135? I mean, certainly more people than at 145. I mean, Megan Anderson, like, what are we doing here, right? And, and you and I kind of knew... You and I talked about this before the bout. We talked about how, like... This isn't this isn't really a legitimate opponent. Uh, the only person yeah, I can but think like, of is, is she any more? Is she much more legitimate? And is she much less legitimate a challenger to Amanda Nunes as Juliana Pena? Yeah, much less. Are you kidding? Like like uh, Juliana Pena would mop the floor with her. Yeah, much less. She's she's a shitty fighter. Megan Anderson is uh, like she has a decent stand up, right? She has a serious right hand, but that's it. I talked about this last week. Not much wrestling. Not much grappling on the ground. She's as one-dimensional a fighter as you can get, and in that one dimension, she's not even really that high level. She just hits incredibly hard with the right hand, right? That's it. Julianne Penny's been through the fire. She's been in there with high-level competition. She's beaten some high-level competition. She's beaten good grapplers, good strikers. I realize that she's not super consistent right now, and look, I, I don't love that Julianne Penny is getting a title shot off of like I don't know two-fight winning streak or something. But no, one, one fight, one fight, one fight unbelievable, man. Yeah. She got su- she got right. subbed by Jermaine Durandamy, and then right. she beat Sarah McMahon. Yeah, that's right, and that's the thing. She she was doing well against Jermaine Durandamy until she got subbed, right? So Juliana Penny is a good fighter, man. Um, and again, like I would take a Juliana Penny title defense over Megan Anderson any day. I don't think Juliana Penny has really any legitimate shot at all. She's I know she talks trash and she's talking her way into this matchup. And again, if you look at the rankings, right, Holly Holm. Uh, she beat Jermaine, Jermaine Durandamy. Amanda Nunes already beat Raquel Pennington. She beat, right? And then below that, we have kind of the next generation. Juliana Pena, Yana Kunitskaya, Irina Aldana, Penny Kianzad, Caitlin Vieira, Carol Rosa. These are girls that are kind of on the come up who are going to start to make their name. I would love to see some of these girls match up with Rocky Pennington, Durandamy, and Holly Holm. I think there's a fair chance that these girls end up vanquishing uh, some of these up-and-comers. So maybe they should save somebody like Kunitskaya, uh, maybe put her in a matchup where she can win the next two leading into a, a title shot. It is weird. She's cleared out the division. I get that. Um, the only other person I think that we could talk about her having a competitive fight with is the flyweight champion, Valentina Shevchenko. Yeah, which, you know, I'd, I'd watch them uh, roll it back a third time. Although I, I worry that on the trajectory of their careers and skill sets that this this time, if there's anyone that's going to be a, a super definitive victory for Nunes, I would probably make it this one. Yeah, I don't know. I, I definitely see it still being a close fight, especially given that Amanda would have to cut down. And again, she just doesn't seem excited about the prospect of doing it. She's never said, I'll never do it. But again, I th- do think there's very good reason why she hasn't competed at 135 lately. Um, but I still think it'll be competitive. I, I think that it might be boring because both of them might be very risk averse in that matchup, like they were in the second that second uh, go. But I, I I do like I think that's the best possible challenge to Amanda Nunes, unless she like takes a year off, unless the division figure itself out a little bit. Yep. And then, Nick, we got to get into this. This is the most controversial fight on the card. This is the fight that at least I was looking forward to most by far. And that was the matchup between Aljamain Sterling and Piotr Jan. 
It was going about as I predicted that it would. This was your underdog pick that you're also very proud of, I assume. Uh, although, although, I'm sorry, he wasn't an underdog. It was a pick em fight. But it was going about as I predicted it, right? It, like you thought that um, Sterling would be able to get that early takedown and take care of business like he did against Sanhagen. Um, I figured that the first round was going to be very close with Sterling possibly taking it because Yan usually takes that first round off. And I figured that by the second round, Yan is already putting his foot on the pedal. By the third round, he should be doing really well. And I believe it was in that fourth round, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, where Yan ended up just, I mean, you could just tell by that round, by the last round of this fight, that Peter Yan, Peter Yan was in complete control. Aljamain Sterling kept turning away from punches. He kept rolling onto his back. He made lame attempts at takedowns at that point, and Peter Yan was literally just tossing him around onto the floor at will, landing leg kicks from up top, and it just seemed like every indication was very clearly showing us that Piotr Yan was on his way to either a TKO or a pretty decisive decision once he gets to the scorecards. And instead, Piotr Yan made a huge mistake as Aljamain Sterling was on his knees as Piotr Yan was standing over him, which to just that moment alone kind of shows you where that fight was going. Uh, Piotr Yan made a huge mistake of landing his right knee right to the side of Aljamain Sterling's head. And, you know, the way it works in MMA tradition is, and Chris Weidman did something very similar, is, you know, you you play it up a little bit. You might get a, you might get a point deducted from your opponent. You might get a, a decent break considering Aljamain Sterling was tired, right? That's the tradition. No fighter ever reacts the way that Aljamain Sterling reacted to getting hit uh, by that knee. No fighter ever reacts that way to a legal strike, which shows you what it shows you that there is a play up factor to it. Right. And I think being exhausted, getting beat up, clearly showing that he felt like he was breaking. Um, I think all of that attributes to the fact that a lot of folks think that Aljamain Sterling kind of pulled one off on everyone. It's the first time in UFC history that we saw a title change hands by disqualification. And did Peter Yan do the wrong thing? Absolutely. He, he made a stupid, stupid mistake, an amateur mistake for a guy with his level of experience and skill, uh, and it is inexcusable. But did he? Did Aljamain Sterling earn that title? No. Yeah, he certainly didn't earn it. And listen, I've never been – you know better than me because you've you've got, you know, hundreds of live rounds and you've been hitting the, you know, hitting the head more than you probably would like to admit. But um, – the thing is, I mean, I, I, but I, I had to wonder if, when time gets called, if you react differently than you wouldn't than you would if the fight was going to keep going. Well, I like just automatically based on the fact that like you have it, you you have a time. I don't know if your how your body and brain respond to the fight the the fight essentially being postponed, and if that would account for, you know, the same way. When a guy when a guy gets hit with a low blow, the choices that he makes would be very different than if the ref did not make the call. I I can't say for sure that that Sterling's response was natural. Where I do agree with you completely is Aljamain Sterling showed nothing in the twenty minutes leading up to that, or eighteen minutes, whatever it was, that showed that he was a better fighter than Peter Yan or that he had a path to victory against Peter Yan who hit him hard once and changed the essentially changed the fight grappled uh better and more more technically if not more athletically and es- essentially walked him down and owned um more or less every every second of that fight he just there was I don't think there was a real I thought 
and why I picked Sterling was because I thought that especially early on with Jan being an information collector and something of a slow, slow starter, that there was a chance that Sterling's uh, athleticism and wrestling would land him on, on Jan's back. And that at that point, he may be able to get a choke. Uh, and that was coming off of the Sanhagen fight. It didn't seem like a... a re- I, I didn't say it was necessarily likely, but I was picking it to happen. Um, and now I don't think there's any chance that that would happen. <laughs> no, after after watching that, it's 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 hard to ten out of ten. To, uh, ten out of hard ten to come to that conclusion. It's a t- yeah, yeah. That that's what it looked like to me, honestly. Because even when Sterling was able to get him down early on in the fight, Peter Yan had no issues getting right back up. Sterling wasn't able to control him. Wasn't able to get his back. Wasn't able to put him into any trouble. That was really my big concern: is that Sterling might be able to take his back as. Um, as Peter Piorien was working his way to his feet. He often makes his back available when he does that. And that was a concern of mine, to be honest. Uh, but but yeah, I, I felt good about Piorien's experience up until that point. His one loss, which was a grappling-based loss, which was arguable, he put so much damage on his opponent. And then he avenged that uh, loss, even though his opponent had so much more experience, just a fight later. And that was years ago, right? That was just a few fights into his career. So you, look, Peter Piorien is something special. He just made a giant, giant mistake. There's some controversy about whether or not Peter Yan's corner told him to knee him. Um, from Peter Yan's perspective, this is the way that I understood it. Piotr was focused on Aljamain's hands, right? Whether they were down or up. I think Piotr assumed that Aljamain was kind of crouching, that he was on his feet uh, with his hands down, trying to, you know, trying to avoid the knees that way. And then as soon as he lifted his hands, Piotr thought he had a clear path to a knee. It's not a good excuse. You've got to pay better attention. Uh, his corner, at least in English, was yelling at him, punch only, punch only. And granted, there might be a language barrier there. I think the referee came to the conclusion that it was an intentional illegal uh, knee. I don't think Piotr Jan is stupid enough to make this mistake intentionally. I think he, like, there's no not enough to win from this. You're going to give this guy who's exhausted, who's close to being finished, a break. He is on his knees right now in front of you. Like, basically, like, at your mercy, right? Like Ray Longo talked about how that knee was execution style. The reason it was available to be execution style is because Aljamain was broken. Aljamain was not trying to win that fight at that point. It seemed like, although when he was throwing, there was some effect, right? Like he was able to land occasionally. It just didn't seem like it was dinging no. Peter Yan. They yeah. looked largely like arm punches. Uh, but Peter Yan had him at his mercy. He made a huge mistake that that cost him. Uh, his one UFC loss, right? I mean, he got his wire. He got his wires crossed. It happened. He'll, you know. Yeah, yeah, he he really did. But I really don't think that Piorian intentionally wanted no to illegally knee him because there's nothing to gain from that. Nothing, and and you don't get and you don't get the sense he's that kind of guy. Like it just yep. doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. Well, he is mean, right? I, I could see him maybe putting an extra headbutt in there, kind of like Kumar Usman likes to do uh, when he's trying to rough up his opponent and make him angry, you know, as long as he can get away with it. But this is different. This was incredibly blatant. Like, right, if you know this is an illegal knee, it's like, it's like... No, it, was some, it was Mortal Kombat. Yeah. <laughs> it was some, it was... Yeah, it did kind of seem that way. So Sterling's reaction, right, initially he kind of fell over, before the referee stopped it, by the way, he fell over and, and started selling the, the blow, which I get. It was a hard hit. It clearly was not concussive because Sterling was conscious enough to know that it was illegal to go off to his side and to hold it and to kind of act as if he's in agony and pain, right? Like, fighters don't do that if it's a legal strike. You almost, I mean, you never see it at this level, ever at a championship level, right? Um, And then, 
you know, he, he just, his facial expressions just seemed to be a little bit over the top. It seemed that way to me, right? And then he did the honorable thing, right? The l- Let's say that Sterling wanted out of that fight. He assumed, let's say that it was going to be a no contest. The belt was wrapped around his waist. He dropped the belt as he exited the octagon. I think that uh, was a good look for him, right? Like you can't celebrate this kind of win. This is not This is not based on your own merits that you won this belt. Yeah, three, then, fast three hours later. <laughs> exactly. Three hours later, he's celebrating with his team. And by the way, this is after Dana White said at the post-pipe, post-fight press conference, he said, Aljamain Sterling got checked. Doctor said he's fine. There's nothing wrong with him. Like, what does that tell you? And then Sterling is... Well, I mean, that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he didn't have a concussion. Well, I, I, I kind of feel like it might. Maybe no, he I still did. Maybe he still did. But there's nothing, like behaviorally, he didn't show a concussion. When you get a concussion, you don't hold on to the spot you got hit in and scream in agony or, or like wail in agony, right? Like that's not usually a, a high-level fighter's reaction to a concussive blow. You're usually out of it, legitimately out of it. You're usually confused about what happened. You usually don't remember how that happened. Aljamain Sterling was very aware that it was an illegal need the moment it happened before the referee intervened because he fell over in agony. He wouldn't have fallen over in agony to a legal strike. We've never seen him do that before. And to be quite frank with you, Chris Weidman from the same team did the exact same thing. I, I like both these guys. These are both New York fighters, right? I've followed both of their careers for ages. I picked Chris Weidman over Anderson Silva the first time they fought, but but both of these guys did what fighters do, right? You sell it a little bit, you milk it, you get a little more time. You might get a point deducted from your opponent. I'm not against that, right? But both these guys, they oversold it, and it cost Chris Weidman his... Uh, I mean, granted, he, he should have been legally TKO'd. Those were legal knees. And Chris Weidman reacted as if they were illegal, right, in the same way that Aljamain Sterling did. So there is a selling aspect to it. But if Aljamain didn't have pictures posing with the belt afterwards, celebrating with the belt afterward, um, you know, they, he talked about throwing up. I mean, was it because you drank a lot? Or was it because you got concussed? Because you weren't throwing up shortly after, right? Like, he, he says he well, was We don't know. We don't know later. what he was doing backstage. And right, I mean, Longo said he saw him throw up. I don't know why Longo would be around if he was drinking, but... Well, I mean, uh, I don't see why Longo wouldn't be there during the celebration, although Longo seemed to, like, stay away from the actual pictures because I think Longo realizes that, like, that's not a good look, dude. Like, you don't want to... Well, then why didn't he tell him that? I mean, maybe he did. I mean, maybe he did, but it's know. also in the middle of celebration. Everybody's having drinks. He's got all his friends around him in a house that he's been renting for the last several months, right? This is, like, Aljamain's home, essentially, that they were in celebrating. And, look, I wouldn't also wouldn't be surprised if Ray Longo was in bed. It was probably super late, right? The uh, card ended at after one o'clock. We're, we're assuming that it was like three or four in the morning. Ray Longo was probably in bed at that time. So Aljamain Sterling was with with a bunch of the crew. You know, I love that we're trying to. I love that we're we're discussing the ins and outs of Ray Longo's bedtime. <laughs> well, it's it's a factor here because Ray Longo, understandably, is going to his fighter's defense. Um, again, like I like all of these guys. They're a, f- a fantastic team. I've been following them for ages. Um, we, I have some common coaches with some of these guys, uh, at least formerly. Um, but this was, this was a weird look, man. The celebrating pictures afterwards, the, the picture with Henry Cejudo where he seemed perfectly fine, right? In his, uh, on the night of his celebration where, or maybe it was the next day where he and Henry are, are kind of posing toward each other. And Aljamain makes a suggestion that that might be the next fight. Like, are you serious right now? Are you seriously talking? Even like pondering the idea of moving on and not defending this title against the guy that should be arguably holding it at the moment. It's a weird situation. Um, I, I, I think that it should have ideally been a no contest. Um, I, honestly, I would have been perfectly fine with the referee deducting two points from Piotr Yan if Aljamain Sterling was willing to continue. I get why, he, you know, it's fine that he wasn't. Uh, it was just a weird kind of 
series of situations that resulted in this weird circumstance. Al Jermaine is now kind of seen as the heel in MMA. And he's a good kid. He's a good looking guy. He's marketable, right? He's got all these things going for him and he's in this weird situation now. Um, and the only part I think that was really his fault was just the the pictures that were posted after him celebrating oh, yeah. uh, him with the title on his shoulder after he dropped it in the ring. That was the right move, right? You want to give that kind of thing off. Uh, there were guys that won interim titles that dropped them, like Justin Gaethje. Yeah, don't say anything, don't do anything. Train yeah, your ass exactly. off for the for the next fight because you just got outclassed. I don't. He, I mean, he he's also delusional about the quality of that fight. He, you know, he said that he thought it was one of the. He was having one of the the greatest bantamweight fights of all time. I think I can name ten bantamweight fights that were better than that off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean it, it was a good uh, it, it fight. Was, it wasn't. It, it was. It was fine. Yeah. It wasn't particularly competitive. I agree. Uh, it was fine. It wasn't. Dom, it wasn't Dominic Cruz, uh, TJ Dillashaw. Yeah. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't Dominic Cruz, Cody Garbrandt. It, you know. It's. Um, I agree. I'm. I'm there with you. I, I. I do. I think it was. It's not a great look for Sterling. I still like Sterling. I still think he's going to be a top guy in the division after this, as long as he doesn't let this kind of derail him mentally. I, I'm sure there's a lot of hate going his way right now, and uh, I'm sure most of it is not deserved. Right? Like, I don't like. It was a blatantly illegal knee. I don't. He didn't show signs of a concussion at the moment to me. But it was a blatantly illegal knee, so like I don't blame him for milking it. It's just milking it and not wanting to continue. And the fact that he was tired, the fact that he looked like he was breaking. His own coach admits that he was breaking, right? His coach admits that his body language was bad. So yeah, it was a, it was a weird circumstance. I'm I'm sorry that it ended this way. I do hope that they run this back as soon as humanly possible. Aljamain talked in an interview post fight about how you know this kind of strike can really affect your career. Like, I don't know, man, when you go out, when you go unconscious, yeah, it can affect your career. Like, Aljamain Sterling was on his back for, I counted about four minutes after that knee was landed, um, where he was just kind of flopping onto his back and up. There are guys that have gotten horribly knocked out who are unconscious for more than a minute, who were able to get up within three or four minutes and at least sit on a chair. Like, that's part of what makes me feel like he was milking it a little bit. And part of it is maybe that he stopped moving and so his body just really like cooled down and he was feeling particularly tired that way since, you know, he was just taking a bit of a beating. But it was a weird situation. Uh, it wasn't a good look for Sterling and and I hope that they run it back sooner than later. Um, and uh, let's quickly talk about Makachev, Drew Dober. Makachev is 19-1, and phenomenal fighter. According to a lot of people, the next Khabib, I picked him with some confidence and, and you saw, you know, a chance for Drew Dober to potentially come in there and do something. Man, not, Makachev I mean, just shut him no, down. No, not, not really. I didn't see. I I picked Makachev. I just thought that Drew Dober had a puncher's chance, but because Makachev has gotten knocked out before by a less, a, 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 I think, a lesser uh, power striker than Drew Dober. But I think this went the way it was most likely to go. And everyone should be excited to see Makachev again. Well, yeah, I mean, look, is he an entertaining fighter? No. Um, but if if he can keep finishing, it's great. Eh, I don't know. I think I think he is. Like, But he does. He just drags you down. He doesn't pound you like Khabib, right? He doesn't take your soul away by just beating the hell out of you. He drags you down and he grapples and he and he tries to find the opportunity. He's clearly looking for submissions, which I appreciate. Um, you know, he's a little bit more decision-based fighter uh, leading up to his last couple of fights or really leading into this fight. Um, but yeah, look, the, the fact that he's the fact that he's uh, finishing a guy that has lost by submission before multiple times, has lost to grapplers, it's kind of to be expected. I think his uh, an Esco, Efren Escudero, who lost to by submission, uh, Olivia Aubin Mercier by submission, neither of these guys are submission like darlings, right? Benil Daryush by submission, understandable. Islam Makachev by submission. This was a tailor-made matchup for Makachev, so I'm still very much looking forward to seeing him fight a top-flight opponent. 
Um, this was just like a gift for him in, in a lot of ways, even though there was some danger standing up. So again, w- would love to see him step up and fight somebody that's that's really in that top. And again, we always talk about lightweight. These two guys should not have fought each other. These two guys should have fought top contenders uh, instead of eliminating one of the prospects. But Islam Makachev is clearly legit. I, I mean, I think it's a little rough to call. I mean, Trudeau has been around a while and has several defeats. It's hard. I mean, he was on a he's been on a bit of a run and shown some improvement, but it's. Um, I don't, I don't have as much of a problem with this, with the, the matchmaking as, as you do. I, I, I agree with your overall matchmaking uh, issue with the UFC. I don't, I don't think this fight was a terribly. Uh, well, it's in this division, right? Why aren't we seeing Makachev fight a tough, tough guy? Like, I don't get it. He fought Chris Wade, Nick Lentz, Gleason Tebow, Cajun Johnson, Armin Saryukan, Davi Hamos, Drew Dober. Because those guys' managers don't want him to fight them. Well, I, I mean, I, I get that, but it's up to the matchmakers to to make the division move on. Otherwise, we're stuck with Conor McGregor yeah, at number five I, forever for no reason. No, I, I hear you. I just I, I think part of it's on the UFC, but a lot of it, I think, is on guys' managers not wanting yeah, them to run that. into a fighter that people don't know that makes their fighter look helpless. Yeah, I no, mean, I, I, do, I, do, I do get it. If you're managing someone's career at, at lightweight, you need to you're going to try to manage them out of that path until at least until Makachev's got like you know it could be like Khabib level awareness I mean he'll, he will probably never get Khabib level awareness but you know what I mean yeah until yeah, he's a star I, I, I know what you're saying it, it, I mean look if he can somehow somehow talk his way into a Conor McGregor matchup Conor might just be stupid enough to take it at some point uh, and, and, and that could obviously do something big for Makachev. But no, he, he's not the personality that uh, Khabib is. Like, I've, I've heard both guys speak in their native language in Russian, and Khabib is that much more charismatic in Russian as he is in English than is Islam Makachev. Makachev doesn't really have much of a personality. He There's like no real, like, there's no facial expressions when he talks. It's very monotone. He doesn't say anything interesting or exciting, but he did talk, call out, Tony, Tony Ferguson, which I guess I'm fine with. I would prefer a Justin Gaethje matchup. Like, like take on a winning fighter. Don't take on a fighter that was dominated in, in the last uh, eight rounds that he fought. But, you know, whatever it is, it was a good uh, win for Islam Makachev. And then uh, outside of that, we got to give credit to... Uh, I mean, Alexander Rockets took a super boring decision over Santos. I talked about how this could be a staring contest, and it was. Dominic Cruz did really well against Casey Kenny. I don't know why it was a split decision. You and I disagreed on this one. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the one that I got wrong as far as old guard, new guard. Um, Kenny's, yeah, Kenny's approach was just a little meat and potatoes, and he wasn't, he just wasn't able to get to him with any regularity. Cruz. Cruz was still Cruz. For a guy who's fought seven times in ten years, I didn't know what we were going to get. I thought he looked good. He looked strong. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, he's lost a little. He's not quite as quick as he was, uh, and he manages his energy a little bit differently. But that was a that was the performance of an octagon general. I agree. I agree. He looked really good out there. Kyla Phillips also, man, looked so wow. smooth. He's a, yeah. So long, so well, he just wow. we you know we just hadn't seen him do it against against a higher level uh, competition. So like our sample size was was not great he'd only had two fights in the ufc uh and they weren't against you know really good guys now you know i think we all want to see who kyler phillips fights next that's an interesting matchup because you got after that performance you got to put him in with a name who do you who do you think we match him up with let me quickly look at the rankings here um like i don't know if i want him to go very deep into that top 10 but like outside of that not no not deep into the top 10 let's see i'm looking at bantamweight now uh, I think somebody like, I mean, I don't think Dominic Cruz would would like to fight him, and I don't think it's a great matchup for him. Uh, no, and really, that's, when you look at not, it, you've got yeah. um, 
Pedro Munoz, I, I would love to see him against Marlon Marais if Marais is coming back anytime soon. Uh, Marais, I mean, a guy, an un, a completely unranked guy, and I don't, I don't think we're going to see Marais for a while. No, probably not. But but that's the thing. This division is such a shark tank. You've got Honey Barcelos in number like uh, right around number twelve. Jimmy Rivera right around that same level. Marab Devashvili. These are incredibly tough guys to get through as a prospect, right? And then just under that, you've got Marlon Vera, who I would be very down for that matchup. By the way, Marlon what about Vera. what about Ricky Ricky Simone? I mean, he and Ricky Simone are both in three fight win streaks. I I'm into it. I know I know you're not that into matching up prospects, but like that one seems to make sense to me. It's yeah. like who's you know, who's unlocking the top 10. Yeah, at this that. point, I kind of see Simone as uh, a high-level gatekeeper, so I think it's 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 a perfect matchup. Yeah, it's it's not going to be easy for Phillips, but I didn't think this matchup was going to be. I thought that he was going to be the slower, less explosive man, but that didn't matter, man. He he just completely outcrafted him like he did in his first two UFC fights, and you're right. The reason that I wasn't willing to pull the trigger and pick him is because we hadn't seen him do it against truly top-level competition yet, and he did it against a serious prospect in Yudong Song who hasn't had a loss, Nick, since 2016 prior to this bout. Uh, really, really impressive stuff, although his last two fights were extremely close and controversial. Um, and then the one that you got right, Askar Askarov, man, just dominated Joe Benavidez. Joe B has nothing left. It seems like uh, he lost his soul in those two crushing defeats to Davis and Figueredo, man. See, I, I don't know if that's exactly the case. I think everyone keeps saying in response to this fight that it was a case of Benavidez being shot versus Askarov being good. When Askarov's been awesome in all of his performances. Like I think he's a, I think he's an incredible fighter with very good situational awareness. People are like, oh, he's the least athletic guy. I'm like, I don't I don't know if that's the if that's the case. He doesn't look like much, but in all of his fights, he's able to he's he's an incredible scrambler. He gets great positions. Um He's he's you know he's slick and savvy. I think his hands. I don't think his hands are are bad at all. I think, you know, I, I think ben, Benavides can still probably beat most guys at flyweight. I just think Askarov is a real deal and is a top three fighter in the division. You know what? You're right. I didn't mean to take this away from Askarov. Askarov performed really well. It takes a high level fighter to beat even this version of Joseph Benavides. But Benavides getting dominated like this by by a guy with Askarov's attributes. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like Benavidez losing a, a scrappy competitive uh, fight to him, yes. But for him to honestly seem broken like in the middle of that fight against a guy like Askarov who, you know, he he's he's really good. He's talented. He's a good grappler. Pretty good striking. I think i got to give him more credit for that. But, man, is he not the type of guy where, where like, I don't think you expected him to do this kind of thing to Joe Benavidez, right? Like, he just took his soul in there, it seemed like, to me. No, I didn't expect I didn't expect him to hurt and, and bang up Joe. I mean, Benavidez, I mean, I didn't feel like Benavidez ever gave up. Like, he got beat everywhere. Yeah, he got beat everywhere. And, and it seemed to me like Joe Benavidez was broken by, like, the end of that second round, man. It just seemed like he had very little left. Askarov was putting that front kick to good use. Uh, his hands were looking good. He was able to outstrike the smaller Joe Benavidez. Um, I think he got multiple takedowns on him. Like, that's really, really impressive stuff. So Askarov is on the map. He's legit. I know he's uh, been your guy since his UFC debut. Uh, he has 14-0-1 at this point. Um, and he looks fantastic. He's in the top three or four, and the only man who to arguably beat him is the number one contender at the moment who's scheduled for a rematch with the champion. So so really, really impressive by Askarov. Uh, Kaikar France came back from a rough 
couple of minutes against Bontorin, who just looked like he was going to physically dominate him, and just caught Bontorin, man. Uh, you know, the Kaikar France's nickname is Don't Blink, and this is like the first time that we saw an example of why you should not blink during one of his fights, because, you know, he, he used to get knockouts, I think, earlier in his career. He's gotten a, a bunch there back into that 2015-2016 range, but boy, oh boy, has he been a decision machine since then. Came in here and finished a really good opponent. That was impressive. We had Tim Elliott dominate, dominate Jordan Espinoza. And during the fight, there was some trash talk. He called him a woman beater. I actually read into it a little bit. There is a woman that apparently was friends with Espinoza, whom he insisted on coming home with and then like didn't want to leave until things got weird. And then she started screaming because she was concerned for her well-being and he proceeded to choke her out before disappearing and then like disappeared and you know even though they were friends prior to that disappeared out of her life so definitely some uh, controversy involving Jordan Espinosa we just heard that he got released I am very comfortable with that I'm glad that Tim Elliott picked up that dominant win um, that was actually very close on the odds and I think a lot of folks expected Espinosa to do well given his 90% takedown defense Kennedy ends the Chukwu Came back, looked so good against Olberg. Uh, you were really confident in Olberg. I wasn't as well, much, although I did pick yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, he looked awesome, but he blew his guy. I mean, he's an out of you know, city kickboxing guy, out of Sani guy. Ezuchuku, like, doesn't know what to do when he starts getting mauled. He just kind of covers up and stands there. Like, I disagree with you. I think there was a clear-cut game plan, and it worked perfectly. Oh, really? I don't think that was a – he was hurt badly a few times i don't know if i would call standing standing there and getting and eating massive shots is not a game plan putting pressure on a guy to make himself tire out and then and then actually nicking him once in a while right on the way to the point that where was not a rope-a-dope it's not a rope-a-dope he wasn't pretending to be hurt i don't think he was that hurt he may have been like slightly buzzed here and there but his game plan clearly was to non-stop pressure. And you could tell if you hear the audio recording in between rounds, Steve Saud was making it clear to Kennedy, you push this man back. He is not doing well on his back foot. He's getting exhausted. He overwhelmed the man. And then he caught him because both these guys are known for having their chins too high. And Kennedy and Zuchuku, who was the less technical guy on paper, just literally out-hustled him. He made it into more of kind of a street yeah. fight. Uh, and he had a better ga- he had a better gas tank. Ob- Oberg gassed out thinking he was going to get the finish because he looked kind of close to get it standing at TKO. Yes, and he had an adrenaline dump and gassed himself out and did not get it. And then he was like, "Oh shit, I still got this big dude in front of me," and he hits hard. Exactly. And here's the thing: that's exactly what a three and zero fighter can tend to do. And it makes I mean it makes perfect sense to me. I'm really impressed with this performance by Kennedy. Absolutely not a lucky win. He clearly was moving forward every second of that I fight. Call, I wouldn't call it a lucky win, but I he's still green, and I don't think I did not seem as savvy game plan to me. But yeah, he 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 survived and capitalized. Let's put it that. That's, that's he what I'm pressured him into getting exhausted and then capitalized. I am giving him full credit. Honestly, I, I really do believe like durability was an aspect here. Don't get me wrong; he was getting hit here and there. But not a whole lot of it was super clean. And when he was throwing himself, and it wasn't enough, in my opinion, early, when he was throwing, he was landing. Uh, Sean Brady dominated Jake Matthews after, you know, a little bit of a rough first round where Matthews was able to land on him standing. Sean Brady is kind of uh, kind of a kickback to that old school wrestler, grappler. He sure is, yeah. And uh, really doing well from top position against a lot of these guys. His submission game's really coming together. He, much like Islam Makachev, not super fun to watch, right? There's nothing flashy going on until he can score that finish yeah, his tattoos are horrible too yo man they're, they're something else that man has an addiction who do you who do you match him up with 
you throw him in against Damian Maya if Maya's still fighting. Yes. It's like, all right, let's see what happens there, dude. Exactly. You want to take you want to take people down and take this motherfucker down and see what happens. Well, I mean, I, I don't think Maya's in any danger on the ground with him, but I could possibly see him maybe out hustling him on the floor. The thing is that he might be more technical than Maya standing, but Maya has more experience standing up and probably would have a slight edge there, man. Like, um, he's clearly still working on this aspect of his uh, game, Sean Brady is. So there is some work to do. But again, I mentioned this last week, right? When guys like Eddie Alvarez and Paul Felder, granted they're two lightweights, they talk about how incredibly strong he is. How, like, once he gets on top of you, there's no going, there's no escaping. Um, there's there's something to be said about Sean Brady. He's, he's a serious prospect. I don't know if he'll ever touch that title because I think somebody like Kamaru Usman will always have the other six elements to his game on top of his uh, wrestling and and just kind of strength advantage that he has over most guys. Sean Brady's not the tallest man in the division, but I do think he's top six or seven quality. And until we see him lose, there's not a whole lot of reason to doubt him, I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, matching up-wise, the thing that probably makes the most sense is the winner of Woodley Luke. Um I'm into that. It might be a little bit too, might be a little bit too high up there. Just because, like, I, I like him slowly climbing up the ranks. I think they're treating him like yeah. a prospect, and I love that. I think that's a little bit too high. Uh, Li Jingling Ling might make more sense then. Yes, yeah, I, I think he's a great gatekeeper for that top ten of the division. I, I agree with you there, and uh, I know several people have been calling him out uh, lately at 170. Amanda Lemos. Like she's clearly super fast, super athletic, hits super hard, very strong. Right, yeah. she's got every athletic uh, thing in her favor. Her conditioning in the third round is still somewhat questionable, but man, can she do horrible things to normal human beings in that first ten minutes? She just ran through Lavinia Souza, who at very quickly into the fight, a super experienced fighter, uh, fourteen and two going into this bout, wanted nothing to do with this bout anymore. About a minute in, yeah, Lemos is uh, Lemos is is legit. She's uh, scary. Question, you know, who does she fight next is a good is a good question. I think that's somebody um, who you can start to hit up with that top ten. I, I would be open to a matchup uh between the winner of Angela Hill and uh Oh yeah? Yeah, yeah. Ashley Yoder, Yoder, maybe sure. Or or the winner of Dern Ansaroff. I'm into that as well. Yeah. I think there's those are two great options and I think they're they're kind of tests for each side uh, Angela Hill who's kind of almost reached that top five and skill wise maybe is there but hasn't quite earned it with clear cut wins yet Amanda Lemos who's clearly on her way up despite her age right she doesn't have a whole lot of time to lose I think she's 30 I, think, I want to say she's 35 she's 30 she's 30 11 33 uh, Amanda Lemos is 33 so so again neither of these girls are young and I think that the winner of this fight not would it be an exciting fight heck yes could be a co-main event and the winner of that one could go on to something uh, pretty big and then Uros Medic who looks spectacular in his UFC debut it's another guy that I was very confident in going into this one just watching the tape on him he's a hunter he's a killer I love that he trains under Rafael Cordero at King's MMA like if you're yeah, a southpaw awesome. yeah if you're a southpaw kickboxer Go to Rafael Cordero. Spend some time with that man. He will teach you how to round out your game in order to be able to use your kickboxing. Like He is the much more aggressive version of Jiga Jigadze, and I am super impressed by him. Yeah, badass Serbian fighter, man. He looked real. He looked really, really good. He cut a good promo afterwards. Um, and then we had um, Trevin Jones prove that he is no fluke. He got, he got dynamite, and he 
Mario Bautista is a tough dude. Everybody was picking him. And Trevin Jones, man, is a hurt machine. He really is, man. Like that, It's weird because that first round, you wouldn't get any real indication that he has power. He did land one right hand on Mario at the end of that first round. I was like, ooh, that was a hard one. But Mario reacted well. But boy, in that second round, dude, he catches you and you're out. It's rather ridiculous for a guy who came into the UFC with an 11-6 and six record, right? So he he lost more than a third of his fights going into the UFC. Now 2-0, and o, although that first one was taken away uh, from marijuana, but still 2-0 and o, arguably in the UFC against two serious prospects in this weight division. So really quickly, Trevin Jones moved from basically a journeyman to a prospect at 135 pounds. He's doing it. He's really good at it. Watch this hand. Oh, I'm going to hit you with the other one. Like he's. Yeah. Those deflections, those little tricks, there really are the difference between the very tip, tippity top of uh, strikers overall in MMA or otherwise, and those that are like athletic and have good technique, but can't quite make it to that upper level. I agree with you. It's, it's good stuff by Jones. Let's take a break, Nikolai. We're going to get into UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad. I'm actually somewhat looking forward to this one. Remember the name. You almost forgot the name. You were like, Edwards versus, hmm. And then he's like, dude, my nickname. And then you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, right, because his nickname is Do Not Forget My Name. Is that is that right? Is it's Bilal, make a note of this. <laughs> Bilal, make a note of this name, Muhammad. I love it. Let's take a break. <laughs> Come back and break down the card for these folks. Back on the podcast to break down UFC Fight Night, Edwards versus Bilal. Take note of my name, Muhammad. Uh, Nick, this is an interesting main event. We've got Edwards, who's been on a big win streak, I think, ever since his loss to the current champion. Um, he hasn't lost a fight. I think he's on a six or seven win fight win streak at 170 in the UFC. Not terribly exciting, right? But he always has the right answer to just about everything his opponents dish out. And then we've got Bala Muhammad, who's really refined his game as a pressure high up a fighter. And on paper, right, these two have what the other one is going to have trouble with. Edwards has experience with the pressure fighters, uh, and Muhammad has the high output, which Edwards does not have a very high output at all. So I'm very curious how this matchup is going to play out, and I think it's going to tell us a lot about what the top, uh, let's say, eight of that welterweight division is going to look like in the near future. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, uh, you know, Edwards has beaten uh, Vicente Luque, Brian Barberina, Rafael Dos Anjos. Those are all guys I would describe as high-output guys, but we can get into it when one of us picks that fight. True. Uh, they're high output guys. I would say that that focus a little more on the striking, uh, whereas yeah, then, then the forward yes, then the forward pressure um, and the level changes into the into the grappling. Yeah, but Edwards wrestling is phenomenal. We'll get into that, of course. Uh, let's. Uh, it is my first pick this time. I uh, got five points to your four from last week, Nikolai. And this week, my first pick is going to be none other than Nazrat Hakpras to beat Hafa Garcia. Here's the thing, Hafa on paper, right? He's 12 and 0, undefeated, a champion in Combat Americas. Um, not a bad resume going in, but Hakpras is a super fast southpaw fighting out of Kings MMA. He's an aggressive pressure fighter with power in his hands. He should have his way with Garcia. Um, Nasrat, again, he's he's faster, he's more technical, he's bigger, and he's more experienced at a high level. Whereas Garcia has a glossy record, and like if you see him fight, it's not nearly as impressive. So I've got Nasrat Hakpras with some uh, with some confidence in this one. Yeah, me too. I love watching the little Kelvin Gastelum fight. <laughs> um, 
but uh, I think that's a pretty good first pick. It was going to be um, in my top three. Uh, my first pick, I'm going to go with the how is he only 36 years old, Ronnie Yaya. <laughs> Um, or Anahaya, right? Haniyai, whatever. You know who I'm fucking talking about. Haniyaya. Um, <laughs> yeah, to, t- to defeat um, Ray the Judge Rodriguez um, out of Brazilian Top Team Texas. I mean, I got, I got the feeling that Ray Rodriguez is one of those guys. I can't remember if his fight with Brian Kelleher was last minute. I think it was. I believe it was, yeah. I feel like this is kind of a second chance for a guy who's not quite at the level um, of UFC caliber. And Ronnie Yaya, though he's, um, you know, he hasn't fought in about a year in the UFC um, since he had a he went to a draw with Enrique Barzola, which is nothing to be ashamed of. By the way, I heard um, Barzola's been released, and I hate that. Go on. Really? Yeah, it's number one bullshit, Nick. Is uh, is number one bullshit after <laughs> lo- yeah he beat Bobby Moffat and then he lost to uh, uh, Evloev, but everybody fucking loses Evloev. Yeah. He hasn't fought since, but he hasn't fought in a really long time. Yeah, I wonder if he's saying um, no to fights. Anyway, uh, but, but anyway, that, yeah, yeah. That, that could be it. Anyway, so I just I just think if Ronnie has still got it, I still think he's probably um, just an all around UFC level guy with strong gra- grappling. His striking's okay. And you know Ray Rodriguez got uh, got choked out double quick by Brian Kelleher. I just think like we've seen a couple of these guys lately: the Kevin Crooms, the um, oh, Justin, uh, Justin James, James, maybe. Yeah, I think that I just think that he's you know could he could could Ray Rodriguez catch lightning in a bottle? Sure, he's he's a tough guy. It's just Ronnie I has been doing it at a much bigger stage, way going way back to WEC against high level dudes. He's been in there with the best of the world: yep. uh, Benavidez, Hominick. Kid, uh, Kid Yamamoto, even, Ed, you know, I just, uh, I think that this should be. Um, I don't want to go as far as to call it easy money, but if running out of just fights like a UFC level mid mid UFC level guy, uh, he should be able to uh, thirty twenty seven the shit out of this. Yeah, I don't see any reason why he should thirty twenty seven. I think he should be able to get a submission. Rodriguez, Maybe. yeah, Rodriguez has good Muay Thai, decent grappling. Actually has some high-level experience on the regional scene against guys like Tony Gravely, Jimmy Flick, and Chris Gutierrez, uh, and obviously the UFC lost to Brian Kelliger. So like some pretty successful UFC fighters he's already faced in his career. And here's the thing, right? I like Yaya to get the submission when, like, if you think about it, like you remember his record being worse than it is. He's 11-4 and in the UFC, even though he hasn't won since 2018. So pretty solid. He just goes out there, dumps his entire gas tank to take you down as quickly as humanly possible and submit you. And if that doesn't work, then about a round and a half in, he is pretty spent and tired. So he needs to survive at that point. I like Yaya to get a submission win here, but Rodriguez is the only man to beat Jimmy Flick in almost three years, right? And Jimmy Flick has a similar submission based style as Yaya. He TKO'd him in the clinch after surviving on the ground. So he has had success against the dangerous grappler recently. Yeah. Sure, but Jim, Jimmy Flick isn't built as durably as Ronnie Yaya is. Like, yeah, but but uh, Jimmy Flick does have wrestling, but uh, still, like he's been submitted multiple times, right? I think Chris Gutierrez submitted him, Tony Gravely submitted him, Brian Kelliger yes. submitted him. So I don't like his chances here after losing by submission in his UFC debut. I'm in agreement with you. My next pick is going to be my girl Angela Hill to earn Aww. a workmanlike decision was- over Ashley Yoder. 
That was my pick last time, you bastard. It was your pick last time, but unfortunately it wasn't meant to be Nikolai. The MMA gods, well, we'll see. Maybe the MMA gods will give Ashley Yoder a controversial split decision win since that seems to be the way that Angela Hill's career is going. Uh, Yoder is, like, she. she's gotten more well-rounded, right? She used to just purely be a grappler, and she's actually developed a bit of a striking game from that southpaw stance. Um but she is largely a journey woman, right? Like she's still slow as heck. She's not particularly strong. She can occasionally drag somebody to the floor. She uh, needs to, and she seems to just not, not have that third round, like push to get wins over top level competition. And Hill has improved in every facet of the game over the past couple of years to become a top 10 quality straw weight. Unfortunately, she lost two very close decisions to Claudia Gadelia and Michelle Watterson, which many people believe should have gone Angela's way. She went from being a good Muay Thai fighter to incorporating footwork, head movement, wrestling defense, and offense recently into her game. Um, so Angela should win an entertaining scrap, and if she is mentally where she should be, it should not be that close, even though Yoder tends to make it close. Yep, I agree. It's just as I did last time we talked about this fight and it ended up not mattering because of the stupid cancellation. <laughs> uh, next pick, and you may disagree that I'm doing this one so soon. Don't do I'm it, gonna go with Darren. I'm going to go with uh, the English fighter Darren Stewart over Eric Anders. I just think that Derek's, Darren Stewart, as a, as a precise kickboxer who's got good movement and quicker hands and quicker feet, like, Anders is just a plotter. He's got some power, but he hasn't had a lot of luck knocking anybody out recently. Um, that At least not that I can recall. And um, he just he's just kind of plotting. I don't think I don't know if it's gas tank or he's just like a slow dude. And, I, th- I mean, I really think Darren Stewart should just be able to, like, piece him up in a kickboxing fight. I see this going the distance. Um, I don't see Anders being able to take him down. Darren Stewart, for an English English-born fighter, is a very competent uh, wrestler. Um, I just think I think this is Stewart's fight to lose. I got to check the odds, but um, yeah, Stewart is honestly not a big enough favorite. I think he's somewhere around minus one fifty, minus one seventy. Um, I agree with you. I, 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 w- I would put him. In, I would. I would give him probably two twenty. Yeah, I'm there with you, so. man. Like, I think I mean, it's a good deal. I think there should be some investments into Stewart at the very uh, like straight money line is worth it at these odds and possibly even in a parlay. This is my first bet recommendation for this card. Um, here's the thing: both guys are five and five in the UFC, so like not very impressive records. That's amazing on paper. to me that Darren Stewart's only five and five, right, but he's but got split decisions it. against Edmund. Well, I, oh, I was going to explain it, but you can explain oh, no, it since no, it, no, was my, it was my it was my it was my pick. No, no, please. I, you were done explaining. Well, he's got close. He's continue. got. You know, I would have get. I thought. I thought he did enough to win that Kevin Holland fight and the Edmund Shabazian fight. He really, really took over and ran that. So he's got some super close. Some super close splitties. Yeah, what against really say? good fighters. But here's the thing. Yeah. Stewart started his UFC tenure going without a win in his first four fights. Right, and then he went five and two since then, and those two losses you just mentioned, who they were too, right? Some pretty top level competition where he was dominating the third round, both against Holland and Shabazian. Um, Anders started his UFC career at three and one, and has gone two and five since. So, one guy's improving while the other guy has seriously regressed. I think a lot of it is because Eric Anders, who came in as a prospect, got a couple wins. He was thrown to the fire against Thiago Santos, and he wasn't ready for that shit on short notice. And I think that like ruined him physically. I think it did some things to him mentally. I like Darren Stewart big here. Actually, uh, like I said, I think the odds should be uh, wider. He's faster, hits harder, is more technical almost anywhere. I recommend investing uh, uh, a pretty penny into him on this one. My next yep. pick... 
is going to be... Well, hang on. I just want to add one thing. Yes. Like Darren Stewart should have won his first fight in the UFC by knockout, but an accidental headbutt contributed to the knockout, and it was ruled a no contest. But he was he was cleaning right. shit up. Yeah, that, that, that would have made his so record... It wasn't, it wasn't like he was out of his... He wasn't out of his depth for his first... You know, True. His first, you know, True, even though I think fights. it was against a pretty low-level opponent, but, but yeah. It was a pretty low-level Brazilian guy, and then he had three comp- he had three losses, and then he beat Spicely. Yeah, like I said, he really became much more well-rounded, and his issue yes. used to be his conditioning. He's definitely, definitely worked on that. So uh, I, I commend him on that. Um, this is, for me, at least where it gets a little bit tougher, the rest of these picks. I'm going to take... I know what you're going to take. I do. You do? I don't think you do, because I don't even know I what do. I'm going to take. Um, I know. I'm going to take... Jeez, I'm going to take Charles Jordan to beat Marcelo Boom, Rojo. I knew it. Is that what you thought, really? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I knew you were going to say. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> uh, awesome. Here's the thing about this one, right? Both are effective strikers. Jordan is more physical and unpredictable, and Rojo is more technical and possibly faster. I'm going with Jordan because of his grit and UFC experience, but Rojo might just out-technique him. Honestly, it's possible. He might. Jordan, Jordan fought really poorly in his last fight. Yeah, but, uh, yeah he, he doesn't always make the best decisions. <laughs> Another reason that I'm picking Jordan is that he's fought up at 155 pounds and Rojo is a 135-hour uh, pounder coming up. So Jordan should be quite a bit bigger and Rojo took this on short notice. So uh, still, I think the odds are Rojo. a little too wide considering... say it right, bro. Rojo. 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 I still think the odds are too wide considering the matchup. Let's not forget Jordan is... One and four in his UFC bout so far. I'm sorry. I'm sure I should say he has one win in four fights in the UFC thus far. So like a little right. too wide in the odds, but I think the size difference, the short notice, contribute to it. Agree. What you got, All right. Homie? Next, I'm gonna go with, and this is a hard one for me to say, and I know it's probably the other one you were talking about. I'm gonna go with uh, Gloria De Paula uh, to defeat my girl Jin Frey. Your girl Jin Frey. No loyalty, Nick. God, well, oh, she's, loyalty. she's so pretty, but <laughs> she, she is just not, she's an atom weight and she's, she just is not big enough, um, and is not good enough in any one area to control three rounds of a fight. And she's going in up, up against a Brazilian prospect, um, who's just going to be bigger and stronger. And if she's bigger and stronger and won a fight on the contender series, I don't know that like 35 36 year old Ginny Frey is going to is going to be able to stop someone like that is, you know is going to be able to stop somebody like that so i see i see Frey spending a lot of time um in guard you know trying to defend from guard um i just i don't i don't see her path to victory in the UFC against just about anybody um, at 115. I think Ginny Frey's two losses in the UFC thus far against like respectable prospects, right? These are girls who are going to have some success as they continue on in their UFC and you careers. Don't, you don't think you don't think Gloria Well, is that? Gl- Gloria Gloria might and and that's the thing, right? In her contender series bout, she started off the fight by getting just like ragdolled, like got taken down at will. So, in my opinion, this fight really depends on one single thing. Whether or not Ginny Frey actually like wants to win it badly enough to do the things that it would take to win it. Just get a takedown. Hold top position. Yeah, but she was, I mean, she got ragdolled by a judo fighter too, which she's not, which is not Jinny Frey. Jinny I mean, Frey is, a, is, I mean, mostly a Muay Thai fighter, isn't she? True, but she is strong and she hits fairly hard when she lets it go. Her, her low output is really her issue. Um, look, Paula is raw, but she's athletic, younger and taller, much more active when competing. For those reasons, I'm giving her the slightest hints of an edge, but Jinny Frey, all she has to do is go for takedowns, just like 
Think back to her last couple of fights and what she did in the third round will work here in the first round. Get some takedowns, get some control. Um, it just seems like Paula has no wrestling. And again, she's a young, raw fighter. But uh, but yeah, look, I, I, I can see you being right on this one. This was much, much lower on my list, though. My next pick is going to be in the Jonathan martinez Davy Grant matchup. Here's the thing, right? Grant went from being a good grappler only to really putting his striking game together recently, to like, which kind of helps him implement his submission game as well. But I don't think it'll be enough against the surging Martinez. He's fast, really smart with like the decisions that he makes in there, uses all of his limbs as weapons. He trains out of Factory X. I've overlooked David Grant in the past, and he might just surprise us all over again here. But I'm going with Jonathan Martinez to uh, to to win by simply just outcrafting him on the feet. Yeah, I'm a fucking huge Jonathan Martinez fan. Well, in that case, I'm glad I didn't give you the chance to pick him. I'm kind of bummed about that. I really, he's my, he's my boy. <laughs> uh, I like those. I like the nerdy looking fighters. I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go, uh, with, uh, JJ Aldridge over, uh, Courtney Casey. I think, uh, Casey just has not looked great lately. And Aldridge, uh, I have a feeling that she's going to feel Aldridge's power and that Aldridge is going to just be hungry to pour it on. I see, uh, maybe a TKO stoppage here. Yeah, I don't know about a TKO. Like, the issue with Aldridge is that she's not particularly, like, she's kind of small, right? Courtney Casey has lost six decisions in the UFC, most of them very close fights that could have gone her way, too. But she's faced, like, top competition. Claudia Gadelia, Michelle Waterson, Angela Hill, Cynthia Calvillo. In fact, she has a win, I believe, over Angela Hill, if I'm not mistaken. She's a rangy striker who looks for submissions off her back since her wrestling game isn't high level. When I say rangy, like, she's tall, but sometimes she she herself kind of closes the distance and, and takes away her reach. Um, like, her mediocre takedown defense is a concern. The fact that J.J. Aldridge tends to do tends to do pretty well, at least early on, from her southpaw stance. I'll pick Aldridge, who has a 4-3 and three UFC record, to beat Courtney Casey, who has a 5-7 and seven UFC record. But this will be a close decision, as most of Courtney's fights are. My next pick. Uh, Wait, do we have any disagreements yet? I don't I don't think we do, Nick. You, you, you better start getting honest here. I'm watching you. I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, my next pick, Nick. Let me see here. I'm I'm trying to okay. I'm gonna pick this. Your nose. This might be your ass. This this might be controversial. I don't generally. I don't really know how to respond to that. Uh, this might be controversial. I'm gonna pick Gavin Tucker to beat Dan Ige. I know Ige is a hustler. I know he's a pressure fighter. I know he's got more high level experience than does uh, than does Tucker here, but. Tucker is so just technical everywhere, right? He's 4-1 in the UFC. He's a creative southpaw, very technical on the feet. He's a Hensel Gracie black belt, so very skilled on the ground as well. He's used to being faster and overall better than opponents, and I think he should have that edge in this matchup too. Um, the thing is that he has a prospect label, but he's 34 years old. It's kind of now or never for him. And obviously, Dan Ige, 14-2 overall, 6-2 in the UFC with wins over Masad Bektik and Barboza, uh, trains in extreme couture, so this fight is basically at home for him, right? Will his relentless pressure be enough? It's possible, right? Gavin's one UFC losses to Rick Glenn, and it's because of Glenn's pressure and output that kind of wore him down, and, and Ige's a pressure fighter with pretty good output, but he is not as big as Glenn, who has who had like a big height and reach advantage over Tucker. Plus it was much earlier in Tucker's overall career and his UFC career. I favor Tucker given his technical edge everywhere, but Ige might just win an ugly decision if it can make it into yeah, more of a street fight. That's, you know, who's the underdog? 
I believe Tucker might be a slight underdog. No, it's your it's your pick, so this really doesn't matter for me. I uh, this one is yeah, this one's really really close. Who you got? I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Iga. All right, we got some disagreement. I like it. Oh, hang on, I have to do it. Wait, Stan picks Tucker. Disagreement. Got it in there. All right. Um, I'm gonna go with uh. I think that Misha Serkinov is too crafty a fighter to lose to Ryan Span. I think Span's got great power. Serkinov's used to fighting guys with really, really big power. Um, yes, he's been hurt by the insane. He got finished by the insane explosiveness of Johnny Walker, um, as did Span, I think, if I recall correctly. But I don't think Span's that kind of uh, is exactly that kind of striker. So I ju- I just think I think Serkinov is too crafty. I expect this fight to not be um, all that exciting or entertaining. I I could potentially see Span getting subbed, um, but I just I think that Serkinov is gonna um, use his craftiness to uh, to get to a decision victory here. Um, though, like I said, I could see him sneaking in a submission win. Yeah, I, I definitely hear that. I agree with the pick. Um, Span trains at Fortis MMA, 7-1 and one in his last eight fights. Pretty good striking fundamental uh, fundamentals. He's got power in his hands, especially his right hand. Go for ta- He'll go for takedowns occasionally against someone who has power himself. And a good guillotine as opponents enter for the takedown. But he has been knocked out three times, so his chin and recovery are kind of in question, including his last fight. He also doesn't make the best technical, decision- technical decisions in there. Kept running into Alvi's power punch as power, I think it's right hook, over and over again without adjusting. And kind of walked away with a very fortunate decision there, I thought. Serkinov has solid wrestling, even better submission grappling once he's on the floor. Eight of his 15 wins are by submission. He's got pretty good striking, but he's not confident enough there, especially since been, he's been uh, knocked out by Volkanos, Demir Glover, Teixeira, and Johnny Walker. After starting his UFC career at 4-0, having stopped every opponent, he has gone 2-3 and three since he stepped up in competition. This is a fight between two talented guys who can't help getting in their own way, I think. Span makes bad decisions, and Serkinov seems to lack the confidence against kind of higher-level, more dangerous opponents. I'll favor Serkinov to get the takedown uh, takedowns against Span. His chin is not great, but if he's smart and focused, he should be able to ground Span repeatedly to set up a submission or decision win here. But uh, Span is striking is better, um, even though it might not be a whole lot more technical than uh, than Serkinov. So again, it's a pick It could go either way. There's a reason it's this low on our list. Nick, my next pick is going to be in the main event. I'm surprised we have not picked this one yet. Um, yeah, that is kind of weird. Right, especially given the kind of lopsided odds in this one, given the short-notice nature that Bilal took the fight. They've got identical records at 18-3 and three apiece, which is pretty damn impressive on we, both sides. I think we pushed this off because we both like Bilal Muhammad so much. Yeah, maybe. Um, Edwards has got a really good clinch game, and that's something that he's been using specifically against the pressure fighters that he's been facing. His clinches and his takedowns have been kind of the thing that works. Outside of that, he loves to just stay at a distance and pot shot once in a while, uh, not really in any hurry, especially if he can rack up a couple rounds early, just kind of chills out and, and paces himself and waits for the decision to be read. 
He can pressure, but he often backs up. Very, very technical. And he often loses one round in, in a three-round decision, um, almost against no matter who he fights, right? Bilal is obsessed with the sport. He's constantly improving both in his skill and his strength and conditioning. He's a top 10 quality fighter at this point when it comes to his skill. Not the most athletic, but very good striking, solid wrestling, and really good Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, I think it's fairly close to a pick despite the white odds. Edwards is faster and more technical. Blal has more grit and stays much busier. Edwards is used to opponents who pressure and does a great job of clinching or taking top position against them. I favor him slightly at these odds, but it's a dog or pass fight. And given the fact that you and I have this setup where an underdog is worth two points, I think I'm going to take Bilal Muhammad here because it might just give me an extra point. I think it could very well go either way. I think the clinch is really where all of this will be decided. If Edwards can control the clinch, land strikes from there, and hold the clinch, and also get takedowns, he's got this fight, and there's not much question about it. If Bilal can initiate his forward pressure, keep his back away from the cage, and keeps Edwards onto the cage, maybe even score an occasional takedown, that's how Bilal can win it. I, I think given Bilal's output, I'm going to pick him for the sake of the points here. Yeah, it's um, this one's really difficult. and my I go, I've been going back and forth um, quite a bit on it. And when we think about the, uh, you know, the fighters that Bilal's lost to, they are um, precision strikers who've got a lot of pop. And and if he gets hurt early, like it t- it can it saps him a little bit, um, which is you know. But he's also beaten some, so, you know, he's certainly beaten some hard hitters. But it's just a question, uh, you know. You look at he lost to Neil, he lost to Luke, he lost to Alan Jabon, like. If uh, if he starts getting if he starts getting tagged, because while well, he's a good striker, he's not a great striker, and he certainly leaves himself open to counters as he's moving forward when he's punching so often. Yep. Um, as he's mixing things up, if Edwards, um, if Edwards persist, like it's the kind of Bilal Muhammad has the kind of offense that like an Israel Adesanya would eat up. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And it's. Like, but it's like, where is Edwards at this point? It's been a couple, almost a year and a half. half. Yeah. So like, it's, it's a, it's a tough one to call because we've seen Muhammad more frequently. We've seen him improve. Um, He's more well-rounded, but if Leon Edwards is able to um, keep Muhammad at the end of his punches and make him pay for all of his forward motion, then it can be a very long five rounds for Bilal Muhammad, whose face is going to get you know pretty beat up by the end of it. You know the other the other thing is, can Muhammad get by those punches, get through them, make it ugly, do what he did to Diego Lima to some extent, get it up against the cage, um, and you know take him down and win three rounds you know that way. It's it's a, it's a tough one. My heart here is with Muhammad. My brain says that like Leon Edwards, the UFC has held Leon Edwards in such high regard uh, for a reason. But listen, it's not my pick; it's yours. So I'll go with Bilal Muhammad. Yeah, it's it is it is a fascinating one. There's also one aspect that we haven't really discussed. Bilal fought, I think it was either two or three weeks ago, and he did get his shin pretty busted up against the younger Lima brother. I wonder how yeah, much of a factor he, that is. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, as much as he was, he was, as much as his leg was getting uh, beat up in the fight, he didn't really wear it. We we were watching it, being like, "Damn, we're seeing the tabulation of Lima's Lima's kicks." Right, it's uh, that mental Mah- strength. To Bala Mahama's front front leg, his left leg, right, right, and uh, 
but it wasn't one of those fights where we've seen plenty of tough and strong guys be like, I'm a tough guy. I'm ready to do this. My, um, you know, my, uh, like Jimmy Rivera being like, yep, my leg doesn't work. Uh, I can go out there. I'm going to do my best, but my leg doesn't work. Like we didn't see Jimmy Rivera's like lack of heart. His leg just wouldn't work. Right. <laughs> like, and that it, for whatever reason, it could have been where Lima's positioning. It could have been that those, those, you know, they seem like calf kicks, but maybe they were more hitting the shin. I don't know. Um, but I don't think he's going to be compromised. Uh, I think it's a really interesting fight. He knows it's the fight of his life. This is his dare to be great moment. Yep. It, he's either going to step up and step over, or Edwards is one fight away from a title shot. Really, real tricky. I, again, my brain says Edwards. My heart goes with Muhammad. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to remember his name. Very well. Um, next pick, I'm going to go real quick as we get towards the inner. I'm going to go with the the big, strong, friggin' uh, wrestler. Uh, Jason Witt over uh, Semmelsberger. <clears throat> what do you got there? I'm there with you. Um, it's it's close, right? Like I'm I'm rooting for Matthew Semmelsberger. He's like a creative switch stance striker, solid boxing, good kicks. Will go for takedowns late if needed. Slows down every round, but only looks tired in the last couple of minutes in that third round. He's got explosive power. Um, the, his corner seems to have a dial into his many techniques and how to ask for them, but he can be susceptible to the jab. End of the third round, he just kind of let it go and hurt Minos. So tired doesn't matter mentally to him, which is a really good sign. Great variety, mostly head strikes, legs second, and body strikes third. Witt trains with Gloria MMA under James Krause. He's 1-1 one one in the UFC. Not the best striking, but solid wrestling and ground game as he showed in his last fight. Tough to call this one, but I hope that Semmelsberger can defend takedown since he could be an exciting prospect if he can come through here. Witt has been knocked out a few times and, and uh, Semi has the striking to take advantage if he can stay on the feet. But I think Witt should be able to use the same pressure grappling game plan he used in his last fight to get the win here. Um, Semmelsberger was not difficult to take down a year and a half ago. So it's hard to pick him in this one without seeing that addressed. So uh, look, he, he could be a really quick learner. He could be with the right people. But I tend to agree with you here. I'm really going to be rooting for Semmelsberger, who I think just has a higher upside overall. Uh, my next pick, Nikolai, the last and final one. Is this an even or odd number of fights, Nick? Odd. Oh, so in that case, I, the, we don't really need a tiebreaker. Is, so we'll both. This is your seventh pick. Yeah, so so we already have each of us have six picks, right? To to uh, to work for the yeah. draft, and this will work as a replacement if any other fights are pulled out. But um, I guess we'll both just kind of give our pick, and you know we'll see how this whole thing plays out. This is actually a pretty damn good matchup, I think, at one twenty-five. Two very skilled, very technical strikers. Nicolau has really good calf kicks. Um, yes, I do. Oh, <laughs> Nicolau has really good calf kicks. Um, Throws flying knees, like sometimes multiple per round. He's pretty explosive. Good clinch knees, good footwork, and takes decent angles as he counters with his, with his punches. Cape is kind of a tiny Bobby Green. Great hands, switches stances, and talks trash throughout a fight. But he's hittable, right? He's got good wrestling offense, but he can get stuck on his back by a good grappler. Um, he's recently been uh, taking a lot of pictures with the AKA crew and stayed in Vegas at the Performance Center since his last fight, so he might be in really good shape here. It's a close matchup on paper. Kape is mostly a boxer, and Nikolau throws lots of calf kicks. Plus, Kape took this fight on 10 days' notice, so I'm leaning towards Nikolau to bring his UFC record up to 4-1 and one against Manel Kop. It's interesting. Uh, Nikolau like, has fought in the UFC, was 
like I think three and one, lost his first UFC fight, got his first UFC loss, and then never came back to the UFC again until now. I don't get why. Um, if Cop is in shape and goes for takedowns while defending takedowns well, he could hurt Nicolau with his hands and uh, and get the win. But uh, I am picking uh, Nicolau by small margin. I am picking Cop. Awesome. So we disagree on that one Manel, as well. Like Manel Cop. Manel Cop. Thank you for pronouncing that correctly, Nick. Should we quickly look at what's coming up next, Nikolai? The week after this weekend, let's see if we have a UFC event. Wouldn't be the worst thing to... Nope, of course, it's not a week off, but it is an exciting matchup. I mentioned this matchup a couple times a couple of weeks ago. Brunson versus Holland is the main event. I'm excited about that. We have Gregor Gillespie coming back to face Brad Riddell. I am yeah, very yeah. into that matchup. I think that's fascinating. Taitu Vasa versus Dontel Mays. You know, kind of a mid mid-ish level uh, heavyweight bout there. Adrian Yanez versus Gustavo Lopez. I, oh, Yanez. Yanez debuted with a beautiful head kick knockout. Max, Ma, um, Max Griffin is coming back against Keenan Song. Who else? Kay Hansen is coming back. Macy Chazon versus Marion Renault got rescheduled to this card. Uh, Grant Julia Dawson. Julia Avila. Julia Avila's on this one too against uh, Julia Storiolenko. Julia Storiolenko. It's weird that they spell it that way because I'm pretty sure she's Russian or Russian-ish, and it's shit. Wait, Johnny she, Eduardo's still on the roster? Is he? He fights like every six years. He's like 49 years old. I'm guessing right now, but yeah, I guess he does. He hasn't fought in three in almost three years since he lost to Nathaniel Wood. Grant Dawson's on the card against Leonardo Santos. I am into that. Uh, Trevin Giles, Roman Dolides. That's somewhat interesting to me. Um, we have. Montel Jackson, Jesse Strader. I don't know who Strader is, but Montel Jackson uh, is under was a prospect. Um, and I, th- I think that's about it. Honestly, like, decent meat on the bone. I would say there are six or seven fights here that are very, like, definitely worth looking forward to. Um, definitely several names that are, I think, worth looking forward to. I would say it's about on par with this weekend's card. Like, not phenomenal on paper, but pretty good. What do you think? I agree with your assessment, Stanislav Dryad. That's literally as much agreement as you and I have ever done in the history of the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Speaking of which, Nick, we're on episode 94 right now. We're approaching 100 in no time. Oh, we, got all, we have more episodes than listeners. Um, first of all, that's not <laughs> true. Second, dozens and dozens and dozens, Nick. Lots of dozens. Dozens of dozens, Be- some would say. I'm going to go eat a baker's dozen. All right, my friend. Uh, we'll weekend, talk to you buddy. next week, and we'll see. It's close competition so far. We're picking pretty even. I really feel like, frankly, since last fall, I've upped my game, and I'm going shot for shot with you. You're almost competitive, we'll Nick. You have really upped your game to the point Almost, where... Almost competitive? Yeah, almost competitive. It's good stuff. It's... <laughs> have a good night, buddy. I'm going to fart, because I know we your nose. It's going to be really good. A fart joke? That's what we're ending this episode. Yeah, no, it was, no it, was a gi- it was a big nose joke. <laughs> Because, like, that really takes up all the attention. You can mention whatever you want after the part, but once you mention the part, that is the headline of that sentence. All right, two cans.